Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with David Field, CEO, and Lisa Robshaw, Head of Marketing and Sales at the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. We discuss the zoo's experiences over the pandemic, highs, lows, and why you really can't furlough a penguin. If you like what you hear, subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Lisa and David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you both. Yeah, looking forward to speaking to you. It should be good fun. Well, let's see how we get on with the icebreaker questions and see how much fun it is going to be. Yeah, I'm dreading this. <laughs> I've been quite kind to you both, actually, I feel, because we've got two of you today and we've got a lot to cram in. So what is the worst food you've ever eaten and why isn't it peas? <laughs> oh, my God. I think it was snails for me. And it was when I was 12 in France. So that probably doesn't help. So we're talking like 1990, giving away my age now. And we're in this awful school canteen and this French exchange trip. We were forced to eat these snails. We weren't rude to our hosts. I don't actually think they were good particularly well. I think some of us were ill afterwards. Oh, gosh. The texture, the smell, the whole experience. Yeah, I adore snails and I adore peas. Um, I'm not sure your your listeners would particularly want to hear about my adventures when we've been out and doing field work in Indonesia and some of the things that we ate out there but we we did have to eat animals which um, were hunted and uh, caught and we ate and they were kind of animals which um, suffice to say had a very strong aroma about them Um, so you're in the jungles you're surviving and it was not nice but it was the aroma of their 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 scent glands which permeated the meat oh god (laughs) yeah I'm getting a really lovely a lovely image of that David, thank you. It makes celebrity in the jungle thing a walk in the park. You were the real celeb. Get me out of here. <laughs> I really wanted to get out of there. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Thank you. Okay, um, to both of you, if you could have an extra hour of free time every day, how would you use that free time? I would do more moth hunting. I like trapping moths and, and, and counting moths, and I never get chance in a morning to do that. So that's what I would do every single day if I could. Moth hunting. Can we just elaborate on this? So this is a hobby of yours. Yeah, you just have and, and butterflies. There, it's amazing. It's the best thing in the world. And you just every night you set out this like light trap, and moths are attracted to it at night. And then you get in there in the morning, first thing in the morning, and you've got all these hundreds of different species of moths, and it's just the most beautiful thing. They are the most gorgeous thing that we never think about that just roam our gardens. And I'd do that every day if I could. Oh, wow. I honestly have never heard anyone have that as a hobby before. That's something completely new for me. How lovely. Yeah, try it. This is why I ask these questions. You never know what you're going to get. What about your unpopular opinions? Harry Potter books should not be read by adults. They are a children's book. Oh, I mean, no one can see my face because this is a podcast. So if you're not watching the video, it's... Gosh. But I don't know what it is. I remember when Harry Potter came out. Again, I'm ageing myself here. I was at university and I just didn't understand why people were going mental. And then I think right about the time of... In the middle of it all, they, they re-released the same book with a different cover to appeal to adults. And I was like, that is wrong. You're ripping people off. It's a children's book. <laughs> no, no, no. I am quite shocked by that. I love the Harry Potter books. <laughs> I'm sure they're great. I've tried reading them. I just, 
They're not for me. What about um, the films? Fan? Not bothered. I kind of put class those as a sort of boxing day, fall asleep in front of it after a few glasses of red wine type of film. <laughs> Anything that keeps the kids kids quiet for two and a half hours. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. But I just don't. I mean, this is ironic that I've been to Annick Castle and done the broomstick riding three times with my kids. And it's a brilliant experience. And but I'm like grown adults losing their minds over it. I just don't get it. Oh, my God. Well, David, I don't know. Can you top that for an unpopular opinion? I'm not sure. Well, well first off, who's Harry Potter? What are you doing to me, David? <laughs> um, so perhaps perhaps this segues a little bit into talking about the visitor attractions and that type of stuff. But um, mobile phones should be banned at visitor attractions. Because it's about family time. Oh, that's a bit serious. Uh, I really do think they should be banned from from visitor attractions. I I can see where you're going with that. Yeah, like being present, not on your phones, not yeah. looking for the not looking for the opportunity to be on your phone, but just being present with your family. I get that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is it's really interesting though. But but from the perspective of being a CEO of an attraction, wouldn't you want people to be engaged with the stuff that you have there so that they share that on social media so that then drives more people to come they can do that when they go home they can do that on their way there they can do that every time when they're in and particularly when they're in the zoo we want them to be engaged with nature we want them to be there in front of them not encasing them in some sort of cloak of electronic gadgetry putting these barriers between them and nature and putting the barriers between them and their family you know uh, live in the moment not on your phone. Oh, what a great quote. Okay, listeners, I really um well, I want to hear what you want. I want to hear what you've got to say about both of those unpopular opinions. Thank you for sharing. Okay. I was going to ask you what you do in your roles, but I think from your job titles, it's probably pretty obvious to people, especially the people that are listening to this. So I thought I'd actually ask you if each of you could tell me what your favorite thing is about the zoo or the wildlife park. Ooh. That's using your favourite child, isn't it? <laughs> I've only got one, so it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, Highland Wildlife Park. Um, for me, it's the expanse and the fresh air. I mean, I'm a city girl. I'm originally from Portsmouth. I've lived in New York and, you know, all this kind of thing. But and I've lived in Edinburgh for 20 years now, but um, or 15 years. But when you get up to Highland Wildlife Park in the beautiful Cairngorms and it's just the fresh air and the space and even when the park's busy... It's almost still silent. Do you know what I mean? It's just this sort of really relaxing place. Um, when I get a chance not to be sitting in meetings all day, as is, as is the danger sometimes when you're on the kind of hamster wheel of working and that kind of thing. So I love getting up there and just spending time and relaxing and enjoying the surroundings. Great answer. That's from a professional point of view. I mean, the animals are amazing. And asking me to pick my favourite animals is always a difficult one. Red panda. But um, <laughs> um, penguin. Darcy, that's the problem. But yeah, that's mine. I love it. David, what about yours? So, you know, as, as, as part of my job, and I've been knocking around this, this zoo world since I was 12 years old. So for me, it really is about the animals and the, and the beauty and that connection with the animals. And as part of my job now, I insist that I have a couple of hours, an hour or so in the day that I go pottering around the zoo. And zoo directors need to potter around their zoo because every day, every different hour of the day every season there is something different going on there's a different animal doing something different something exciting and my favorite animal changes each day but I go out and because the zoo and the wildlife park are so different every single time you go around that's what makes them so amazing and beautiful and inspiring and glorious and 
why I've been doing this for 30 odd years. Oh, perfect answer. I love um, I love that you're just pottering around, just having yeah. a little walk around your zoo, just checking out the animals. It's got right. a really nice. I'd, lo- I'd like to do that. There you go. And I'd like to spend my hour pottering around the zoo. <laughs> if I got my, my extra hour. Thank you both. So the title of this podcast episode is You Can't Furlough a Penguin. Experiences from the last 19 months at the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. Now, I was at the Visitor Attractions Conference um, a little while ago, back in October. And you can't follow a penguin with something that I heard Bernard Donoghue say while he was um, giving one of his very fantastic talks, as as always. And I thought, that's a great podcast title. I'm going to use that when I get Lisa to come on this podcast. I want you to take us back to kind of Feb-March time, 2020, when coronavirus was something very new and nobody in the UK had ever heard the word furlough before. I can very vividly remember what it was like for me with a team of seven thinking, gosh, we've got to pack up, we've got to work from home. Is anyone actually going to buy anything from us for the next year? I've got no idea what's going to happen. I can only imagine what was going through your heads, having a team of people that you were both thinking about and thousands of animals that you, that you, you have to care for that you're responsible for what was that even like (laughs) well you know I think every day you're looking back on that time and you know hindsight's an amazing thing to look back on on how you handled it how many how many hours you spent lying awake thinking about it but then you know in some respects we were no different to to others and everybody was facing a crisis in so many different ways and this has been one of the most important, sort of most significant kind of social impacts in our lives. Hopefully, we'll never get anything like this. You know, my parents, my grandparents had world wars and, and, and stuff like that to deal with. We just had to deal with a bit of a pandemic, which, quite frankly, we should all have been prepared for. It was coming and the next one will come. For me, it was very odd because just February, March, I was... Um, leaving my previous job, ready to come up to Edinburgh to start a new job. So I was having to sort of resolve the issues in one zoo and, and, and leave it in a good enough state, ready to come to, to Edinburgh, where my board, et cetera, at the time, were already trying to deal with the organisation that at the time, we, w- we didn't have a CEO in place then, did we? You just had to react. You just had to understand that, you had so little information that you had to be incredibly dynamic and react to, to, to situations. And the crucial nature before anything else was just securing money, was securing funding, just so that you could make sure that you could stay open. And the difference in dealing with governments in the UK as compared to governments in Scotland were pol- you know, miles apart. Um, and so... That was the that was the crux, and you were so focused into that that other things did did disappear. Once you could get the money, once you could get the bank loans, once you got that, then you could start some sort of planning. So that was the crux. It was money, money, money all the way, just so you could stay open. Now, as good charities, we all had some reserves, but we just didn't know what the end point was going to be, and so securing funding was was the be all and end all. And I guess so, David, were you, I mean, you talked a little bit there about um, the challenges dealing with English government, Scottish government. What, what were the differences? What, what, was, what was difficult about, about that process? Um, access, getting people to listen to you. And, you know, now look, 
we know the government's had so much on the plate that wanting to, to listen to the, the zoo director down the road was probably fairly well low down the list. But it was trying to get the message across that you couldn't, not so much furlough a penguin, but you couldn't furlough a penguin keeper. And trust trying to get those individual messages through, but being able to get that through to to Scottish government made life so much easier. Having people that would listen made so much easier for you. To be fair, DEFRA were were excellent, but it was trying to get to the ministers, the civil servants, you know, hats off to them. Amazing. But try and get through to ministers who actually make the decisions was nigh impossible. Yeah, I can completely imagine. And Lisa, so where did this leave you? Because I guess you then have to think of different ways to drive donations. You have to think about how you're engaging with the audience who aren't able to come to your venues. You know, you've got to engage with them on social media, online and, you know, virtually in some way. How did you even like how did you start that process and where did some of the ideas and, and what did you do? Where did they come from? I mean, for me, it was a massive learning curve. I'm a visitor attraction marketeer by trade. I'm not a fundraiser. And it's obviously a different discipline. Although we're talking to the same people, we're having to talk to them in a slightly different way. So, I mean, back to that week in March, it was a sense of disbelief of what was going on. All of a sudden, we had to put a different hat on and I was learning a new trade almost from our sort of development team, you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, we, put, we put a lot of people on furlough, which meant we all had to wear different hats and support people in a different way I, I suddenly became a, a web developer and yeah you know, I'm a fucking digital marketeer I'm not a web developer you know you want a job because it's really hard to find web developers right now <laughs> I don't think anyone would employ me to be honest I think I, I, I gained that part of my career as soon as I could but um very quickly it was long hours long days um adapting our messaging because to be fair um you know um Edinburgh Zoo and Highland Wildlife Park visitor attractions first almost kind of um, in terms of indi- individual giving, it was such a small part of our charitable income at that stage that um, we just had to completely do a 360. So in terms of fundraising, it was really just making sure that our development team were well supported in um, making sure our messages got out and, and, and working with the comms team to make the messaging was make sure the messaging was appropriate, um, emotional enough to elicit that donation. And then it was working with kind of our discovery and learning team. I think it was only one after we'd furloughed everybody on how are we going to engage with people virtually? So obviously we were looking at the great work that other zoos were doing, Chester, for example, with their Friday kind of online videos and Facebook lives and all this kind of thing, almost, okay, what can we do, which is really Edinburgh or Highland Wildlife Park-esque, you know, and all this kind of thing. So um, one of the light bulb moments, I think, in lockdown too, when we were all getting really quite professional lockdowns, professional lockdowners, you know, all this kind of thing was thinking about how we can um, do virtual birthday parties and take that experience into people's homes and do something different to what other people were doing. And that's what we wanted to do. And that's how we honed our kind of skills, I guess, and how we developed and how we all evolved during the two lockdowns. It was incredible. But the outpouring of support from people we had, I mean, I was very much the same as David, you know, how, and, and, other, and other attractions, not just zoos, but other attractions, how are we going to keep the money coming in while we were closed? How am I going to sell a membership to somebody when the zoo's closed and they're not having the experience? And it's that it, it's things like making sure the membership didn't start until we reopened, you know, so people felt we we're getting the money at that point, but their membership wasn't starting. They were getting the added value when we opened. And our membership, um, the support we had from our members and our new members was just incredible during lockdown. It really was. And that just, it, yeah, it was a massive learning curve. 
I mean, that support, Lisa, that you talked about was 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 huge. Was overwhelming. It was it was remarkable, and you know, certainly Edinburgh Zoo and Highland Wildlife Park, certainly the zoo hadn't had that level of support previously. A level of support that we received from the community was was incredible, but I think that came because the authenticity of our message. We were very, very transparent with what was going on. We spoke to everybody and anybody, whether they wanted to do a podcast, whether they wanted to do a, uh, a, a newspaper piece, whether they wanted to talk to us on the phone. We spoke to anybody. And it was the honest truth of what we were putting out there, that we didn't know what was happening day to day. We didn't know about the future of some of these animals. There was, there was questions about our pandas. There was questions about our pen- penguins. But we went out there and talked. We opened our hearts. We opened our, our zoos to, to information and messages. And the response that we got was incredible. Do you know, I think Edinburgh fell in love with its zoo again. They began to value what they might just miss. And it was about the, I truly believe it was the authenticity of our message and what people saw and heard from, from our zookeepers, from our conservation teams. And that work with the DNL team, the discovery and learning team, was, was incredible because they didn't just put material online. They made it just a zoo visit online. They made it so interactive. They made it one-on-one. They, it, was, it was remarkable. It was just so exciting. I love what you said there about Edinburgh realises what they, were, they, they could potentially miss, you know, if the zoo wasn't, you know, if it didn't exist anymore. Have you seen since the zoo has reopened that you're getting a lot more kind of people a lot more local visitors have you seen that that's kind of increased to people you know they are really loving edinburgh zoo again i think so i mean lisa might you might be able to give a bit more of the kind of stats and and facts of it all Uh, i look at it from a more emotive sense and you just get you do just get that level of of feeling that people believe in what we're doing and they're really supporting what we're doing but I think, you know, one of the most remarkable things for me was when we did reopen and you saw people coming back into the zoo for the first time. And it was also a time when the families were probably meeting each other for the first time again, because we were one of the few places that were open and a few places where people could meet. And suddenly the emotion of people meeting in the place like the zoo, it was it was remarkable. And we we tend to forget the social value of our visitor attractions for quality family time. And that period of, of just as we were starting to reopen, just emphasized it perfectly of how important the zoo was as a family place, a place for real quality time. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And the amount of people that were coming back that were saying, I haven't been for years and I've forgotten how wonderful it was or it is, you know, and you still get that. And, you know, in the school playground, you know, anecdotally, the mum's going, oh, my God, I can't believe you work at Edinburgh Zoo. You've done so much amazing work during lockdown. The kids have loved, um, you know, the the films and all this kind of stuff. And you just go, wow, that that that, that social value is an absolute really good point. Um, and, yeah, anecdotal evidence is that everyone did fall in love with the zoo again. You know, it's incredible. And they're coming back in droves to show you that love now as well. Absolutely. Yeah, our visit numbers this year have been amazing. Um 
you know, better than something summer 20, I think summer 2020 was better than summer 2019, but we have to make, or 21, sorry, was better than 2019, but we have to remember 2019 was a pretty bad summer weather-wise as well. Yeah. Um, but I do, so coupled with bad weather, but with this new affection um, and the fact that people haven't been able to go anywhere else, I mean, it's, yeah, we've reaping the reward. The challenge is going to be keeping the momentum going into next year when we've got so much more competition. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we've got to, we've got to seriously up our game. You know, for the when the period sort of as as we were reopening and lockdowns were being lifted, so people just wanted to get out and, and be local. Yeah, there was a there was a benefit there. People started to see, as Lisa said, you know, actually this is a pretty pretty great place. Look at all this exciting stuff that's going on. But now we've got to just keep going and and maintaining that excitement and that wonderful visitor attraction element, which drives our charity mission. Is essential. So, you know, it's 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 challenging going forward. It is, and actually, one of the questions I was going to ask you is is about how you kept your team motivated through the pandemic. Because you know, like you said earlier, it's not just you can't furlough a penguin; it's you can't furlough the penguin keeper. So, you know, you had a lot of people that were still coming into work during the pandemic because there was a need for them; they had to be there. But I guess, you know, an extra question to that is how do you now keep your team motivated? to keep that excitement and keep that enthusiasm going, to keep drawing the, the people in again? So two, two different questions, or same question, but for two different, um, two different situations there. Yeah, I think there's, um, it's a really, really tough time for the staff. They're absolutely shattered. Yeah. You know, um, staff such as, the, say, the keeping staff, and I mean, you know, we're coming through during the, the pandemic to work, so they weren't getting time off, particularly. And even now, our other teams, which are so crucial to, to making the, the place work and be a great place to visit, there's so much going on that people can't take that, you know, struggling to take their holidays because of the momentum that's going on. So people are, people are tired. And then with, with the challenges that we are getting now, we're trying to recruit new people where there is nobody to recruit. Um, it is putting it is putting pressure on 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 people, but you know it's it's humbling to work for a team like Team RZSS because they just step up and go above and beyond constantly, and it's the it's the belief in in what we do, it's the the love of the animals, it's the love of the institution that people step up to such an extent, and it, it it's remarkable. But they are tired. And we would like to recruit more staff so they could actually uh, recover. We have Kate Nichols on from Hospitality UK speaking with her next week about the recruitment challenge. Um, so if you do have any questions that you'd like to pose to her, feel free to send them in um, because I know that this is widespread right now. Um, and if I'm honest, it's it's not just the attractions industry. It's, no. We're struggling ourselves. Like I said, no jokes aside, <laughs> if you have got web development skills, hit me up. Um, it is it is a, a huge challenge right now and like you said people are really really tired so there's still a long way to go to get everyone motivated and to keep everyone going I really hear you on that Lisa I want to talk a little bit about what you said earlier about the birthday parties and some of the things that you did in terms of uh, engaging with your audience while you couldn't open the zoo will you still carry on some of those things and if so are there any new things in development or or anything that that that's coming up that you're quite excited about that you'd like to share with us? 
Yeah, I mean, the demand for the virtual birthday parties has obviously waned now. And actually, they'll always be secondary to trying to get these groups of kids into the zoo so they can actually, like David say, get close to nature and sort of be around the animals. That's our number one reason for being really, you know, in terms of engagement. Um, but that was great to see the reactions and all that kind of thing. Not only because we tested it on my own six-year-old who had a second lockdown birthday, but also just the demand and people by that point were wanting something different for their kids. You know, it was that was great. I mean, one of the things I loved um, was the amount of companies that came out and actually wanted to work with us. And companies that traditionally the zoo have worked for worked with kind of on a sort of cursory ticket selling level. So hotels, for example. We had um, so many hotels that wanted to come and work with us in a completely different way. So one hotel wanted to do a giraffe-themed bedroom and um, a certain portion of percentage of the room rate would come to the hotel, no, to the zoo. So, I mean, I'm under no illusion, a lot of that was for PR and unusual ideas, but never before have we had hotels being that actively courting us. The big one is the Waldorf Astoria, the five-star um, sort of Waldorf Astoria Hotel, more, form, more sort of um, known as the Cali here in Edinburgh, and they did a zoo-themed afternoon tea. Five pounds from every afternoon tea that they sold came to the zoo with an option to top up a, to another five pound donation. And I think it was three and a half months that was for sale with, just as we were coming out of lockdown. So you could get home delivery or you could get the whole Waldorf Astoria experience. And they raised eight and a half thousand pounds. Wow. So you work out how many they sold. And that was a partnership we would never have had the opportunity to do had lockdown and COVID and the pandemic ha- not happened. So that was fantastic. Yeah. Moving forward, I'm really looking forward to working with loads of different other different companies, you know, over the next couple of years, next year or so. We've started that initiative with our um, art trail that we're doing next year called Giraffe About Town. Um, so this is one of the wild in art trails. You might remember things like Cow Parade. Um, here in Scotland, we have the Urwoolly Bucket Trail, but they're popular all around the country. Um, I think there's been um, Elmer Elephants in Luton that Whipsnade and ZSL were involved with, all this kind of thing. So we're going to have our own unheard of 40 sponsored eight-foot giraffes around the city of Edinburgh next next summer. And at the moment, we're going out and talking to companies um, about sponsoring those giraffes. And what um, this is a complete unknown of a project for me. I've never been involved in something like this to this scale before. But what is really heartening is the variety of companies that are coming out and actually wanting to support their zoo, from big house builders to a company, um, a sort of a one-man band who does synthesizers, things for electric guitars and bands. You know, it's just so random. But it's so amazing to see the outpouring of support that's happening. And also the public are really excited about every time we talk about Giraffe About Town, there's people making arrangements to come to the city and have a weekend break so they can find all the giraffes. And we can, that's kind of our way of giving back to the city as well. So that's a really exciting initiative. Um, alongside the day job, it's, it's quite hard work, but, um, <laughs> um, but it's, it's going to be so exciting. And the whole process is a whole new thing for me um, from talking to sponsors to people who create concrete plinths and you know um these things to sit on and then looking at venues for auctions at the end to raise money for our wildlife conservation projects around the world so yeah that's a really exciting initiative and that would never we would never have taken that type of project on if it wasn't for the pandemic and give the confidence to do it that's amazing isn't it that that's something so fabulous that's that has actually come out of something so so horrendous I don't have a lot of grey hair by the end of it. It's grayer than I am already. But um, already I get quite emotional thinking about what the end result's going to be. And yeah. um, from people, sort of um, companies actually getting a lot of extra PR and marketing value out of working with us 
to people having a great time around Edinburgh and exploring parts of the city they'd never have explored, trying to tick off all their giraffes, to the impact we're going to make at auction with real money for charity. It's mm. quite exciting. It feels like people want to take ownership of an experience in some way. They want to be part of it, not just come to visit. They want to to be part of that for a longer period. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you come and visit the zoo and then you might adopt an animal, but actually being part of the the, the, the walking trail, that's really kind of embedding yourself into, into that experience. Yeah. Um, something that Gordon and I discussed actually on when, when we had it on was the desire for more personalised experiences, that people want to do things that are not just the norm now they want something that's really kind of tailored to to them have you seen an increase in demand for your zoo experiences this year yeah massive massive demand to the point where you know we're getting so booked up in advance it's um it's great but you know it almost gets a situation where we can't fulfill some of them so um so we're having to manage that really carefully to make sure that we don't lose the sale but we're also managing people's expectations but people want that experience and if nothing else the pandemic's sort of in, it sort of reignited that passion you know it's just, people just don't want just don't just want a tangible kind of gift it's this thing where it's like that experience you know that people really want which is we're, we're just made for that kind of experience yeah I think that's that that is really interesting with the need for personalized experience but but deeper and more emotive experiences and I think that's a way not everybody who comes to the zoo can possibly have a personalised experience. Uh, you know, we don't have enough animals. There's not enough time in the day. There's for, for all different reasons. Um, you know, I'm very lucky. I, I I get that kind of contact with animals constantly, and people need that in their lives. They cry out for this this contact with nature, and it makes people better. And somehow we've got to deliver within the zoo more and more of these emotional experiences. We've got to get people to not just look at an animal from um, a distance, but when they go into the giraffe house now at the zoo, they don't just see animals. They're really, really close. They can smell them. They can hear them. They can almost taste them. That sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But it's a full multi-sensory experience. It's a deeper meaning, which is why, the zoo experience means so much more than something you just see on screen. It has to be, we've got to, we've got to make people's, the hairs on people's necks sort of stand up, get them really emotive, get, them, get those emotions running about animals. Then people care about animals more and want to hear our messages about how we can do more to, to protect them or conserve them. Um, so emotion is huge for us. And is that part of, how you kind of inspire people to help you now because I guess the zoo we're heading we're heading into winter so you're going to have less people visiting I wanted to ask what the kind of shape of the zoo is as you head into winter this year but I see that you've got the help the animals that you love campaign still running is that something that you run all year through are you going to be doing a big kind of driver of that to kind of help get through the winter like where where are you at I mean I think there's a couple of questions there I mean in, in terms of we will do various fundraising activities at, at different times uh, and there's you know a recent appeal gone out just for more of our, our general work when there's some specific project we might do other other appeals but I think where we're really trying to get to is that and we touched on it before is that long-term relationship with the zoo um, and I said you know the zoo is different whether it's winter summer spring autumn morning noon evening it's always something different so 
We want people to be able to experience that and really pushing our membership, pushing that long-term relationship with the zoo. And really, there's a cradle-to-grave relationship that you can have with the zoo. And that's what we want to achieve because it's, it's, it's more than just a visit. Yeah, it is. This is something um, that I saw Bristol Zoo has just said that it's going to open its grounds to the public for free after it moves to a new home next year. Circling back to what you said earlier about the zoo really being at the heart of the community and people falling back in love with Edinburgh Zoo. Do you have any more initiatives to kind of connect with that local community, aside from the walking trail that we've just discussed, which I think is is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful way of connecting with the local community. Have you thought about anything long term for the zoo where you get more of the community engaged with it? Well, I, I would say kind of watch this space um, because we will be launching next year a major part of our future strategy is about community. Uh, and it's about using the, the unique resources of the zoo um, and the power of animals to do good, to actually build uh, uh, improved well-being in individuals and, and also in the communities where we work, helping to strengthen the communities where we work. That's really powerful for us. When Edinburgh Zoo first opened back in you know, the early 1900s, um, it was designed by the social architect Patrick Geddes so that it was a place where communities could come and walk and commune with nature outside of all the the industrial areas and built up areas of Edinburgh. And we we still appeal to that. That that idea appeals to us so that it is a place of sanctuary. It is a place where people can come. And we are undertaking a range of initiatives that we can link with the community. We already do that in many ways. We work with different community groups, both in Edinburgh and up at the Hyla Wildlife Parks. And we want to look at all of those um, barriers that are cultural, social, uh, health-wise, which stops people getting to the zoo. We need to work with that. We need to work with local businesses, with local council, with Scottish government, in order that we can become the most inclusive and accessible visitor attraction, not just in Scotland, but in the UK and beyond. It's probably worth um, talking about Highland Wildlife Park as well, the developments that will start next year for the... um... Scotland's Wildlife Discovery Centre. We've got HLF funding for um, some um, massive new developments at Highland Wildlife Park, which are just around that sort of engaging with the community, um, the people that wouldn't normally be able to have those experiences, getting close to nature and that kind of thing, and really telling the story of sort of Scotland's wildlife heritage as well. And I, no, but no better place to do that than the Cairngorms. So we're really excited about that project, and that's going to be an absolute game changer for Highland Wildlife Park. Oh, can you share a little bit more about what makes it game changing or is this um, is this top secret information for the time being? No, not at all. I mean, it's there's been a, quite a lot of information out there about already. And the, the Scottish Wildlife Discovery Centre is is it's a transformational project, both for the park and for the society, because it will be in, in reality. It's a network of hubs that takes you on an expedition across the Highland Wildlife Park. But this expedition exposes you to the people, the place and the animals of the Cairngorms. It brings the beauty of the Cairngorms and all the knowledge and and information that we need to the people that that will come and visit. But we will have, there's a large discovery centre where you can find all this information. There will be hubs which overlook our wildcat breeding programme project and our peat restoration project. Then there's a, a wonderful new accessible learning hub which is, will be open for the community as well. 
so that we can bring people to the park that can that would never have dreamed of coming to the park before or wouldn't be able to come to the park but they'll be able to come for different events community outreach um, but it is designed so that we can celebrate the Cairngorms and the people, the place and the animals therein. What he said. <laughs> what David said. <laughs> Do you know what's lovely is, is you speak, it, there's a real sense of positivity in this interview. Um, whenever you both speak, there's a real kind of uplift and a real kind of sense of excitement about what's coming next. So it's been really lovely to hear that come through from you both. Well, fantastic. Thank you. I mean, you know, we work with animals. It's amazing. You're having a bad day, go and sit with the penguins. That That is not dreadful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the closest I get is to picking up a dog if I'm having a bit of a bad day, but a penguin, a penguin would top it. But that is, it's so important to us. And, you know, it's not a trite statement, but we know that people just visiting a zoo, your stress levels just go down. We know that. We know that, that again, it's that quality social time. It's memories it's access to nature. All of this is important for us from so many aspects. And the power of animals to do good is just, it's beyond. They're amazing. Couldn't have said that any better myself, David. I totally agree with you. Um, thank you both for coming on the podcast today. I always like to end our interviews by asking if you have a book that you would recommend to our listeners. So it could be something that's helped you in your career. It could be something that you just you absolutely love it's definitely not going to be harry potter we know that (laughs) (laughs) um hopefully jeff's not listening to this our past no it's not happening lisa (laughs) um but yes i would like to ask you both if you've got a book that you'd like to recommend i'll let david go first well you know I, i i love my books absolutely love my books and you know, the Zoo Quest expeditions by Attenborough were, were an inspiration to me. But more recently, it's The Invention of Nature, um, The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt, amazing book by uh, Andrea Wolfe. Uh, Alexander von Humboldt, one of the greatest naturalists, uh, one of real kind of polymath that was there. He invented ecology. He saw climate change before anybody else. Uh, and it's so beautifully written and uh, a real inspiration in terms of what he achieved. Yeah, he's one of my scientific heroes. Fabulous. That's very topical. All right, that's, uh, that's David's one. Lisa, what about you? I'm now regretting asking David to go first. <laughs> um, mine is, oh, I'm not that I'm not sure I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. You can. The life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. Excellent book. It was given to me, this actual book was given to me by a friend, God, probably probably about six or seven years ago when I was having a bit of a hard time and um, David would probably make David smile and, and my boss Ben but I give myself a really hard time over things sometimes I just want things to be perfect all the time it's quite topical at the moment um, and actually I just sometimes when I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed I just go into this book and it reminds me that I can't control certain things I just need to give a fuck about the things I can control and not and let go of the things I can't I re- recommend it to so many friends that have found it useful as well um, I know Ben, my boss, would probably want it to be like a bit of a marketing book that I'm recommending or something like that, but I'm kind of really letting down. But this, this is well worth a read. It's a, I have read that book. It is an excellent book. So basically what we're recommending is grab a copy of that book, head to the zoo, go and sit by the penguins. Life will be sweet. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, listeners, as ever, um, you can get to, you can have the chance to win copies of those books. So 
if you would like to win a copy of Lisa's book and David's book, then head over to this uh, episode announcement and retweet it with the words, I want David and Lisa's book. And we will put you books even, and we will put you in the drawer to win a copy of each of them. Thank you very much. I really like those suggestions. Um, And I really am very grateful for you both coming on and sharing your experiences today with the listeners for the podcast. So thank you. You're more than welcome, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.